Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, new research shows strong evidence for the health benefits of listening to natural sounds. Humans are really good at picking up on signals of danger and security. Coming up, we explore how picking up on those signals with our ears can impact our overall health. And we remember the life of Colorado photographer Soren McCarty. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. As we prepare for a post-pandemic future, we also have to prepare for post-pandemic problems. One of those that might go under the radar for most of us is human trafficking. Human trafficking, which is the illegal transportation of people between different areas, often for the purpose of forced labor or sexual exploitation, is something that happens all across the country. And as COVID-19 restrictions loosen, more people are out and about and dormant industries re-enter the economy, Many are worried that instances of human trafficking will spike. Caroline McKinnon is the executive director at Voluntad Streets Hope, a Denver-based organization that provides services and support to survivors of human trafficking, while also aiming to educate the community about the fight against this widespread atrocity. And she joins us now. Caroline, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. Can we start with just a, a definition of human trafficking? What does it mean and what does it look like here in Colorado? The definition that's most commonly used is that human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person to engage in an act of labor that can include a commercial sex act. I think most people have a very sensationalized perception or understanding of human trafficking that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out on social media right now and in in other forms of media, but Human trafficking usually involves a relationship between the trafficker and the victim. Most people are trafficked by an employer, an associate of their employer, an associate of their family. They're trafficked by a family member or they're trafficked by an intimate partner. That's one of the most important things for people to understand is that this is not, in general, a crime of strangers against victims. It's a crime of people exploiting vulnerability in a person that they're in a relationship with. What kind of assistance does your organization try to offer to victims or survivors? And I'm also wondering how that was impacted by the pandemic. We are a direct service provider. So that means that we interact and engage directly with human trafficking victims or survivors. We try to provide them with access to benefits, getting their identification, getting medical care, access to legal services. I mean, you name it. Most trafficking survivors have a pretty broad range of needs. And so we like to try to provide as many services as we can in-house in a very safe and what we call trauma-informed environment for people. But in terms of the effect of the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic really impacted vulnerable people. So what are vulnerabilities in our society? They are 
economic insecurity, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, lack of education, and a natural disaster, which we can think about the pandemic in that way, caused a lot of people to become very unstable. People are losing housing, they're losing jobs, and also people were being shut up in their houses with people who are potential traffickers. So just as calls to domestic violence hotlines, child abuse hotlines went down, so did calls for help to other types of service providers like human trafficking service providers. You mentioned a moment ago a trauma-informed environment. I'm wondering if you could say more about what that looks like and how do you create that space? So what we always want to be mindful of when we're trying to create that environment in our offices is that we don't understand, we might not know all the trauma that a person has experienced, but we need to proceed with the understanding that they have experienced trauma. We don't usually like directly ask someone to tell us their story. It's better and easier for them to do that on their own time and in their own way. It also means that we're very mindful about having people tell those stories in such a way that they're not sort of re-traumatizing themselves in a way, I guess, by telling the story. And that we know that people have to go out and function. As the world does open up a bit more in this waning, hopefully, months of the pandemic, what will that look like for human trafficking? Do you think instances might spike? And and if so, why? So I think we are going to see spikes. It's been shown before after natural disasters, like after some of the hurricanes and stuff, that human trafficking numbers do go up. As people are trying to get out of whatever bad situation they've been in, they may be exploited or maybe vulnerable to exploitation as they try to change their situation. Is there anything else that people should know about this issue? It's just important for people to understand that this is something happening all around them. It is not something happening just in another country or at the border or at the Super Bowl. Things happen in those ways, but these are happening in our community right now. I just encourage people to educate themselves, to have compassion for people that they might see on the street. And I, and I think people need to be mindful about what they do in their own lives that might contribute to exploitation of other people, including like the food we buy, the restaurants we go to, the clothes we wear. So just really hoping that people can educate themselves about this issue. Carolyn McKinnon is the executive director at Voluntad, which works to provide services and support to survivors of human trafficking. You can find more information, including the state and national hotlines at KUNC.org. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Roughly 44 million Americans are saddled with student debt, and every one of those people has a story. Some took out loans to pay for a few semesters of college but never finished. Others are paying off hundreds of thousands of dollars for advanced degrees. Jason Gonzalez, a reporter for Chalkbeat Colorado, has been exploring student debt in Colorado. He spoke recently with five different Coloradans about how student debt has impacted their lives and what debt relief would do for them. Jason, thanks for talking with us. Always happy to be here, Henry. How would you describe the range of people in Colorado who have student debt? Like you said, nationally, there are over 44 million people with debt. Uh, That's $1.7 trillion. Of that, there are about 800,000 Coloradans with student debt, and the majority of those people are in their 20s and 30s. But that doesn't mean that's the only group. The debt really spans age groups. I talked to a woman who is near retirement, and she is afraid that she'll die with student debt. Uh, She has about $70,000 and is 63 years old. 
The debt also spans circumstances. Some don't have degrees at all, while others have doctorates. And that really means different things for earning potential. What were some of the reasons people you talked to had for, for taking out student loans? Simply put, it's it's cost. Nationally and in Colorado, the cost of college has really spiked dramatically over the past 20 years. And that's because economic downturns have caused many states to decrease state support for colleges. In turn, the cost of colleges has really went to students uh, to continue the operations of the schools that they go to. And did they feel like it was worth it? Or, you know, are they now just trying to figure out how to repay that debt? Again, this is based on circumstance. Uh, the majority of the people that I talked to said it was most definitely worth it. And many of those people went to really renowned private or public colleges um, or you know, state schools. The one woman that who I talked to who went to a for-profit private college, she said it was not worth it for her. And part of that is because the school shut down halfway through her education. But the majority that I talked to, they really said, you know, college creates access to jobs and opportunities to do the jobs that they love. Do these jobs cover the cost of that college education? Not always. But for the majority, like I said, the opportunity was worth it to do the jobs that they want in the fields that they care about. President Biden has called on Congress to cancel up to $10,000 of debt for each borrower. Um, did you talk to some of these people about Biden's proposal? And if so, what did they think about it? Talking to each of them, what you start to realize is that debt is situational. It's circumstantial. It just depends on the person. 10000 to that student I talked about who never was able to finish her college education because the private college she was going to shut down would mean so much to her compared to another woman who I talked to who has $280,000 in debt and has a doctorate. Um, neither of them really feel like they'll be able to pay that off. And so even for that student that has $280,000, $50,000 might not be enough. And you have to ask the question, where did they start? Were they low income when they went into college? And I asked people those questions and, and they felt like the different mounts that lawmakers have thrown out there are, uh, you know, different based on what they've been through. Well, I want to turn to what's happening in the legislature here. Colorado lawmakers are considering a financial literacy bill that would help students understand financial aid um, to attend school. Tell us more about this issue the bill is aiming to address. So one of the more powerful stories that I was able to hear was from a gentleman who uh, never had counseling about what student debt means to his life, uh, which debt to take out, um, whether private or federal, um, you know, filling out the FAFSA, the, those kind of things are not always talked to, to students. And so this bill really aims to increase the understanding of financial options of what debt means to students' lives and how to go about this in a really smart way that makes sense to their lives. And this is one step, uh, I think, from talking to the sponsor of this bill to create a better understanding of um, college and life and financial literacy out in the world. Jason Gonzalez is a reporter for Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to his article on all this at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. After a long day, it can be pretty soothing to just step away from technology for a bit, sit down, 
and relax to the sounds of Mother Nature. According to some recent research from a team of scientists across North America and the National Park Service, listening to natural sounds isn't just soothing, it can positively impact your health. We're joined now by two of the researchers from that team to discuss their work and how we can all start to reap the benefits of natural sounds around us, even in more urban settings. Rachel Buxton is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. George Wittemeyer is a professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. George and Rachel, welcome to you both. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now, you two and the rest of your team looked at the available body of research on the health outcomes of listening to natural sounds. Tell us about your team and what you found after meticulously studying all of this material. Our team was composed of researchers from three different universities, as well as scientists from the National Park Service. And we collected all available literature in a, in a systematic literature review to look at this growing body of evidence, looking at the health benefits of natural sounds on human health. We found about 36 different studies, and we put all of these studies together in what's called a meta-analysis, which basically analyzes all of the analyses from these different studies. And this was important because a lot of these studies occurred in different countries, using different types of sounds, asking different questions. So um, we put them all together and, and what we found was fairly striking, striking positive health benefits from natural sounds. Patients or, or participants in these studies that listen to natural sounds had an increase on average of about 180% in health benefits when listening to natural sounds. And also, you know, big advantages for decreasing stress and annoyance. Rachel's really been driving this exciting research in our group for a long time. And uh, we've been looking at often the, the ecological impacts of human noises on ecological function or animal behavior or community composition. So sort of these questions about possibly, you know, aiming at the negative aspects of human noise on ecological functionality. And in relation to that work, it became clear that there are some really spectacular locations uh, both locally and, and, and across the National Park Service system that give visitors unique and, and really superb opportunities to immerse themselves in, in nature and, and particularly immerse themselves in the sounds of nature, the, the natural soundscape. And as Rachel was sort of digging into this and we were really focused on sort of the negative aspects, increasingly she became interested in the value of these really unique sound immersion locations and, and the potential uh, opportunity that we were missing in directing the public towards these resources, towards these experiences, and that by accentuating the value of them, showing people where they are, we could increase public awareness and public valuation of the natural soundscape. And so I think this paper really came out of that effort of moving beyond just identifying these superb uh, natural sound immersive opportunities to actually quantifying the physical and health benefits from them. Do we know why these particular sound waves, um, like from natural sources, impact our health positively? 
you can kind of think of it from an evolutionary perspective where humans are really good at picking up on signals of danger and signals of security. So if you think of an acoustic environment that is full of natural sounds, it's a pretty good indicator of a safe environment. What that allows humans to do is, is let our guard down and it allows for mental recuperation. Whereas if you think of the opposite, so an acoustic environment that's really silent, there's no natural sounds or, or very few, that's a pretty good indicator that something's potentially wrong. And what that initiates in humans is vigilance. It certainly does not allow for mental recuperation and it can actually lead to stress. Your research also involved a sort of public health and soundscape management component. And I thought this was interesting. You got recordings from a ton of different parks and analyzed the distribution of natural sounds and anthropogenic sounds or human-made sounds. And you found that urban parks and parks with high visitation, of course, had more human-made sounds. But there were still plenty of those good natural sounds that positively impact our health. Yeah, we know, especially now we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues, isolation issues. There's enormous opportunity to find reprieves uh, for people that can be therapeutic for them during a relatively stressful time. And I think the, the work clearly uh, demonstrates that, yeah, despite, you know, cl classic urban environments where you're inundated with human-made noise and there's sort of that deep drone that you get in metropolitan areas from all the activity. There's still a lot of sound islands or natural sound opportunities in green spaces that can offer people real benefits. And so one of the things that we wanted to highlight in this work was that these opportunities exist, identifying them, valuing them, and protecting them is going to ultimately be of great benefit to society. And it should really be a key objective in, in uh, resource management or, or landscape planning initiatives, especially in these urban areas. Linking that back to the results from our meta-analysis, we actually found a little bit of evidence that in groups that listen to natural sounds paired with traffic sounds and other human-made sounds, we actually found greater health benefits than in groups that just listen to the sounds of traffic. So that's kind of good news for those of us who live in cities where you know we go to these green spaces, we're still hearing traffic in the background, but as George mentioned, there's these sort of natural sound refuges where we're also hearing lots of natural sounds over top of that, we're still likely getting a lot of the health benefits from those natural sounds. You know, it sounds like in order to reap some of these health benefits, you don't necessarily need to find a area with pristine natural sounds. You could go over to just say a local park. Absolutely. Although, you know, really the best auditory situation for humans as far as health and well-being is, of course, a quiet acoustic environment that has lots of natural sounds. However, we're likely still getting these health benefits, even with noise involved. Rachel Buxton is with the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. George Wittemeyer is with the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at Colorado State University. Rachel and George, thank you for this. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks again, Henry. It's been great. Thanks, Henry.
Earlier this week, Colorado photographer Soren McCarty died of colon cancer at the age of 49. Renowned for his concert shots, McCarty was a fixture for decades at acclaimed music venues, especially Red Rocks. Whether his camera was pointed at the artist or at the audience, his photo style was known for conveying a deep and abiding love for live music. During his last week, McCarty asked friend and fellow music photographer Lisa Siciliano to turn the lens on him, showcasing a raw and unflinching look at the reality of cancer. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick spoke with Siciliano about McCarty's impact on the music photography scene and that last photo shoot. Tell me, how did you first meet Soren? I was working at the Fox, and he was a photographer there, and I was just starting my photography journey, and he was always very friendly. When you're both working to get the same shot, was there competitiveness, or was it? (laughs) Well, it usually is competitive in the pit, but it wasn't with him, and that's one of the reasons that I really liked him. We shot totally, totally different. We had completely different styles, so it wasn't an issue like that either, but he was also very, very encouraging. And every photographer that I've talked to since he passed has said the same thing. You know, there is like this weird competitiveness, especially back in those days in the late 90s. I was one of the only girls shooting in the pit. And, he, you know, he, that didn't make him flinch where it did, I feel like, other people. But with him, it was totally cool. And he was always super, super encouraging of me and everyone else. Can you tell me a little bit about him as a photographer? How did he approach his work? He was just so into it, you know? So it wasn't like a stress thing. And it wasn't like he just really was full on into it. He truly loved music. And he also shot um, sports later in his career. And he just loved those things so much that it was fun for him. There are a lot of Soren's photos still hanging backstage at Red Rocks. And I wondered if that was his happy place. Oh, yeah. We, we all started there at the same time, and it was such a great time period, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. That was like the heyday for rock photographers around here. Things have changed quite a bit since then, but back then it was like there was like a little gang of people that all hung out together, and you'd see each other at every show, and it was just a whole different thing. We got to eat dinner with the bands, and we got to roam around backstage. It was really fun. The last time that you saw Soren, um, about a week ago, you took a series of photos of him that are are pretty raw in their depiction of what he was going through, the toll that cancer had had on his body. When he knew he wasn't going to get better, he's like, I think it's time for you to come do the photos. And he was really, really open about it. Like, he showed me everything, you know. He was like, do you want to see how I empty my bag? Do you want to take a picture of my port? Like, he didn't hold anything back with the photos. And um, there's some really poignant images in there. But that was just so him to not be embarrassed or ashamed or, you know, wanting to hide anything that he was going through. He was very, very vulnerable and open and raw about it. For you, not just as a photographer, but as his friend, was it difficult to take those photos? It was difficult, but I'm also really grateful to have been able to do that for him to show himself to me like that. There's definitely a connection when someone's showing you that much of themselves and allowing you to see that. It's a really beautiful connection that doesn't happen that often in life. And I was really grateful that they got developed right before he passed. So he did. I looked at my link and he did log in and see them. So because I asked him, I said, do you want to see these or will they bother you? And he's like, no, I definitely want to see them. He knew how he looked at the end. And he's still, you know, if you look at those photos, he's looking right at the camera. His head is held up high. He's still a proud man, you know, with a lot of dignity. And that's 
that speaks volumes, I think. If you'd had the chance to talk with him after he'd seen the photos, what do you think he would say? I think he would have liked him. I think he would have been, you know, proud and encouraging like he always was. Do you have an idea of what you'll do with the photos? Well, I have this site called Lumen Project, so I'm going to put them on there. I have a section about people that are close to death that I photographed, but I'm not sure how all of them are going to be put together. You know, I'd like to have a show at some point. It's an interesting thing because it's something that's like morbid, but I also feel like if we could look at it in a different way, because it's all, it's going to happen to all of us, if we could look at it in a different way and sort of a more beautiful way, if that makes any sense, because I know it's not beautiful, as he said, it's ugly, but it's something that we all have to do in the way Soren went really, truly was something that like all of us would be so lucky to have had. I mean, he literally lived until his very last breath. He was surrounded by love. He was surrounded by people. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't just sitting in a hospital bed, you know, drugged up, waiting to die. He literally lived until he couldn't live anymore. And I just think that's such a huge example for all of us. That was KUNC Stacy Nick speaking with Boulder photographer Lisa Siciliano about renowned concert photographer Soren McCarty. You can find more of this interview along with photos of and by McCarty on our website. And just a note, Siciliano has done photography for our sister station, The Colorado Sound. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.